With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. John Miller here with you. Thank you for giving me this time, your time, as always. as It's always your time that you allow me to uh, occupy and have for quite some time. Uh, this will be one of several Just Me episodes here this month as I try to say goodbye the way that I want to. I'm going to try to not make things sound self-righteous or self-congratulatory. I'm going to try to make this as global as I can, but I'm sure that along the way I'm going to fail. And if I veer into areas that sound egotistical, I'm really trying not to. But I don't know if I'll succeed. And I'm sure that if I don't succeed, some of you will let me know. And I appreciate that. But for this particular episode, I wanted to kind of go through an oral history of how this all began for me. And when I say for me, I'm someone that's been around the online Hawkeye community interwebs since they began. It doesn't make me special. It makes me someone that was just there first. And as a friend of mine reminded me this weekend, there would have been a John Miller or someone like me if it wouldn't have been me. I just happened to be somebody that was there really as the internet started to hit a stride with a passion for Hawkeye sports and lifelong dreams that a technology like the internet allowed me to utilize and the entrepreneur in me to exploit and grow and pour my passion into, the timing was right. And so often in life, you, when you have any modicum of success, a lot of it's about timing. There needs to be some talent. There needs to be some luck. And sometimes there is luck and timing. Oftentimes there is. So um, let's start in 1984. And I apologize to those of you who have been such loyal listeners or readers through the years that these stories will sound familiar, or some of them will. So you'll be hearing them again. But I've written out a chronology of events. So I'm actually doing this from notes, which I don't normally do. I'm not reading anything. I just have a spreadsheet as I want to do these days with about six columns. And there's just a few words in each column going down about 45 lines. So let's just get to it. 1984 is where I want to start. Uh, I was a kid, 13 years old in West Branch, Iowa. West Branch, Iowa, for those that don't know, is about eight miles east of Iowa City, right along Interstate 80. It is Herbert Hoover's hometown, also hometown of former Hawkeye All-American and NFL All-Pro tight end Marv Cook, somebody who I grew up idolizing, someone who was five years older than I was. I was at his high school graduation party in 1984. 
Still have the invitation, does our family, to that graduation party from Marv Cook. It's in someone's shoebox. Not sure if it's in mine or my brother's. We went to that party and presented Marv with his gift. And we've all, we've all been to graduation parties. You say hi to people and you say hi to the graduate and there's about 75 people there. So say hi, shake their hands, and then you sit in their couch, you have some of their cake, and you move on and do the same thing at the next party. At this particular party, there was an interesting guest there. His name was Bill. And my dad sat down and began to talk with Bill. And they began to talk about Marv's future at Iowa. Now, Marv Cook was a first-team All-State quarterback, but a first-team elite-team All-State defensive end. And also a kicker and punter. We always joke that Marv did everything but sell the popcorn. And I idolized Marv. My hair wore, wore the same way that he did. And any opportunity that we had to be around Marv as 7th and 8th graders, you know, he would come down and coach some of our uh, basketball leagues or we'd go up to the football field sometimes and uh, my dad would be with us and my dad would kick field goals and Marv would kick and Marv would throw, the, throw us the ball. I mean, it was just an idyllic place and time to grow up. West Branch, Iowa was in the 1980s, so close to Iowa City. And by then, I was certainly an uh, insane Hawkeye fan. So I was really excited Marv was going to be at Iowa. And I, I just assumed, as a 13-year-old kid, that Marv Cook was going to be a quarterback at Iowa. But Bill, the man my dad was talking with on the couch, told my dad that he believed Marv Cook was going to be an All-American tight end. And Bill and Dad talked a little while longer, and then we left, and I was getting in the car. I'm like, Dad, what is, what's, what's this Bill guy talking about? Tight end. What does he know about this? He's like, well, he may know a thing or two about it, John. I'm like, well, how? He's like, well, he's an Iowa coach. It was Bill Brazier, Hayden Fry's defensive coordinator in the 1980s. And, of course, Marv would go on to be an All-American tight end and, and then an All-Pro tight end. And it was about this time that my passion for Iowa sports was really reaching a peak. And I was 13 years old. And I told my dad, I was standing out on our back patio that also served as a basketball court. We were shooting hoops and I just told him. I spoke it out loud. I said, Dad, when I grow up, I'm going to be the voice of the Hawkeyes. And I'm also going to have my own national television show. He just kind of nodded. Hmm. And that dream, I mean, I remember this moment vividly because this was a dream that, that fueled me for really the rest of my life to this point in time. I have always stacked invisible chips on my shoulder that serve as motivation for me. And when people tell me that I can't do something, the chips stack higher and they have a chip with their face on it. Not necessarily in a vindictive way, but in a I'm going to prove you wrong way because there's nothing that I believe I can't do. And a lot of entrepreneurs are that way because you find out later in life there are things you can't do and there are things that you can do or think you can do that you wind up not being able to do that cause you pain, money, or both. And then you learn lessons because there's always another hill to climb and to try to scale another peak. So you keep those chips there. And along the way, you keep those lessons there. And my grandma Miller, 
would tell me that I needed to find a different career because it would be very difficult to get one of those national TV jobs, as she would say. And my dad said it would be very difficult to become the voice of the Hawkeyes. And they both pointed out how few of those jobs existed and not very, very many people had them. To which I told them at 13 that, you know what, somebody has has them. Somebody has to have those jobs, and and why won't it be me? So this is really kind of where I trace my entrepreneurial drive and desires to. And then in the 1980s, after that, uh, one of my grandparents, they gave me a black and white television that had an antenna that was battery-powered, had a four-inch screen, it was black and white. And I could get the Iowa games whenever they were on television, They were on broadcast television, not cable. And I could tune them in, grainy black and white TV, and I had my trusty recorder along with that. I would turn the audio down on that TV, and I would do my own play-by-play and color commentary while I was in my closet, in the dark, watching that, because I didn't want anybody else to hear me. And those are the things I remember. I remember keeping score keeping a scorebook of every Iowa basketball game. And I remember being superstitious at that time and always using the same Crystal Gale album that my mom had as the, you know, the hard surface that I would use to draw on. And still to this day, when I go home to my folks' house, I will go through their records. I will find that album and I will hold it up at an angle to the light And I can still see the depressions that young John made 30, 35 years ago when he was filling out the box scores. I can still see the name Stokes, Carfino, and Arnold on there as I tilt the light. So when I went to college, uh, I I was a broadcast broadcast communications major. Um, I was on the sports desk, desk the night that Michael Jordan retired for the first time. I still have that AP copy that I did a rip and read on for WSIU radio uh, that night. That would go. I recorded it and it went over there. So then in 1994, I WSIU by the way, Southern Illinois. 1994, I was uh, an intern, uh, a sports intern at an NBC affiliate in Peoria, Illinois, WEEK. And I had a lot of fun doing it, but I left it because I just didn't like the second shift aspects of someone who works in, you know, as a, as a, as a local sports anchor, if you will. You get to work early mid-afternoon and you get home at 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I just didn't think that was the kind of life that I wanted. So I left sports once before. I left those dreams. Those dreams, I kind of put them in a box. And I said, I got to find something else to do. And in 1994, I talked my way into a local business in the town I lived in just outside of Peoria, Illinois. And I was, I managed a tractor company, um, you know, small tractors, 20 horse, 20 horse diesel Kubotas up to, you know, 60, 70 skid steer loaders. We had a rental business. The name of the company was Germans, Germans Outdoor Power. German was the last name of the owners of the company. And there I learned how to sell, did that for a couple of years. I, I managed uh, six or seven people as well. And it was a great experience. It was a great experience. It was almost like getting paid to go to business 
grad school and get an MBA. But I, I was not comfortable only because I knew the name on the sign was never going to be Miller's. And I just wanted to make my own way. I wanted to do things my way. Not that I had problems with authority. I've been able to play well with others pretty much all my life. But I just wanted to build my own thing. And my discontent there led me to Kansas City in the spring of 1996. But before I get to 96, it was 1995 that was a somewhat pivotal point for me to where I would go and what I would be involved in. In 1995, it was after the Iowa-Penn State game in Iowa City. I was visiting some friends of mine who had an apartment there. I was living in Illinois at the time, and these were people that I had um, grown up around in my Illinois hometown of Princeville, and they were in Iowa City. Uh, My friend's girlfriend was finishing up pharmacy school. Uh, Neil and Tina T. Lander are their name. Tina T. Lander I think is the head pharmacist at the Walmart there in Coralville across the road from the, the Coral Ridge Mall. And she has been for a long time. I'm sure some of you listening to this know Tina T. Lander. I've known Tina T. Lander since she was 14 years old and her husband Neil since about that same time. And I was at their apartment and they had the internet. And I had never seen or heard of the internet And I'm thinking this was 95. I could be conflating other memories, possibly 97, but I think it's 95 because I don't think I went from Kansas City up to Iowa City. Either way, it was either 95 or 97. And I found somehow a website called Big Ten Fan Forums. It was the message board forums on Big10.org. Big10.org is the official Big Ten site. It still is to this day. And they had the first message boards that I ever knew of. Didn't even know what they were called at the time. And I went to those. And each team had its own online community where you could sign up for a username and you could say whatever the heck you wanted. And I spent hours that night at Neil and Tina's apartment, just reading posts. I didn't sign up to to post. And I was fascinated. And that was the first time that these online hooks got into me. So, 96, moved to Kansas City, began my career in the energy industry. But I was a sports talk radio junkie. It's the first time, um, well, I shouldn't, I should take that back. In 94 to 96, when I was still working at Germans Outdoor Power in Peoria, Illinois, at my lunch hour, I would go out, get up high on a hill in Peoria, and I would listen to Dan Jiggetts and Mike North, the Monsters of the Midday, on the score out of Chicago every day. Every day. They were my introduction to sports talk radio, and I loved listening to them because this was right in the midst of the Chicago Bulls. Uh, fantastic decade of the 1990s. And I was a huge NBA and Bulls fan at that time. Listened to them every day. And the Cubs. So I moved to Peoria in 96. Found a new sports talk outlet to listen to. Um, Sporting News Radio. Papa Joe Chevalier. Johnny the Freak Renshaw. And 
Larry Kotler. That Larry Kotler. This was in 1996. I was 25. I'd never lived in Des Moines, and KXNO was still six or 11 years, you know, 10 years in my future. And I listened every day. Listened to Jim Rome when he got syndicated. Like it was right after he got syndicated out of his Southern California show and he was syndicated nationally. And I started listening to Rome at that point in time. And then there was a sports talk show in Kansas City that had started up about that same time, 1510 KCTE. And that was the forerunner to 810 WHB. But it was still 1510 KCTE. So here I am in my energy industry job, but I still have this itch to get into sports, to have sports be a part of my professional life. I called into all the shows, specifically the show with Jason Whitlock. Uh, he is now of Fox Sports Television, formerly of the Kansas City Star and several other um, journalistic endeavors. I called into his, his show, to his and Chad Boger's show, um, every morning. I was a regular caller. My, my caller name was Hawkeye, and this was in Kansas City. And, you know, Whitlock there through the years would have his annual or top 10 caller list that he'd do once a year, and I was regularly on it. I'd go out to their remotes. I mean, I know. It's, it's, it's embarrassing now when I think about it, but I was just so enthralled with the sports talk medium. Absolutely loved it. Wanted to be a part of it. So much so. I was around those guys so much. I called them so much, and they they liked the takes that I had. We didn't call them takes back then. They had um, asked me if I wanted to be a part of their station. I'll get back to that here in a second. But in 1998, which was a big year in my life as I went through this chronology, I got married, but moved to Denver for a brief time. I was promoted to uh, manage a, a propane wholesale company that the company I was working for had bought. And I reacquainted myself with the Big Ten fan forums. I didn't get back online regularly, probably till 97. It makes me think that 1997 was the first time I found the Big Ten fan forums because I don't think I would have stayed away from it for two years. So I think it was 97. And I signed up for a screen name at this point in time. Denver Hawk was my name. And I know that some of you go back that far with me to where you saw me posting on the Iowa and Illinois Big Ten fan forums as Denver Hawk. And another person whose name you'll recognize was also on those forums at the same time. It's Tom Cakert. And unbeknownst, you know, Tom and I didn't know each other's real names at that time, but we were both on there. We both spent a lot of time on the Illinois boards, uh, frustrating the Illini fans. They were very heated battles. I was absolutely a troll. Uh, John Brumbaugh was on there, and Brumby was how we knew him. And he would later start something called the Illini board. And we had heated battles. And I was flat out hooked. It was also in 1998 that I found the, uh, the herky.org or the herky list serve. And it was something where you sign up for it and people would send an email with a topic and it would go out to the entire list. And then somebody else would reply to that email, which also went out to the entire list. I mean, it was crazy. You get so many emails in a day, but man, it just sucked me in minute after minute, hour after hour. And you had a place for your opinions. I mean, Mike Durbala, Tom Kirkendall, Gwen McNatt, Keith Voigt, so many other people were a part of that. And that was a breeding ground for the direction I would take it because I was hooked at this. 
I could give my opinions and people agreed, people disagreed, we would debate, we would agree, we would celebrate, we would be angry. It was awesome. It was awesome. And it was all via email. And it was at this time that I thought, you know what, I, I want to I want to get back into sports. It was at this time that I saw the internet was, I, I don't even want to say becoming mainstream because it still wasn't mainstream in my opinion in 1988. I mean, in 88, that was the first, you know, 97, I said 88, 98 rather. 97 was the first year that I had a dial-up internet service, America Online. So 98, and, and, and you could pick these discs up everywhere you went that basically helped you sign up to AOL. 98 is when I started what I called the Miller Time Newsletter. And essentially what I did was I would go to the websites of the Cedar Rapids Gazette, the Iowa City Press Citizen, and any other newspaper I could find in Iowa. And I was living in Kansas City at this time. I would copy and paste their articles. And at the end of their articles, I would add my own two to three paragraph commentary with my thoughts and opinions. And I would email that at my day job, at the energy job, to family and friends. And that list started out like, I don't know, 20 people because that's not everybody I knew had an email. I mean, email was still new. And then over the next five months, they would email it to their family and friends and to their friends and to their friends. So after five months, my little email distribution list that started with 20 people had grown to 5,000 people. And I was just adding them to my Microsoft Outlook account at work. And one day the IT person came in and said, hey, what are you sending out 5,000 emails every day for? Yeah, that, that, so that, and my boss found out about it and I told him what I was doing. I'm just having some fun and they asked me to scale back, uh, to scale back on that. I mean, consider this. When I started the Miller Time newsletter in 1998, that was the same year that the term blog was basically invented. The term blog was short for web log. Web log. It looks like we blog, but it's web log. And it was shortened to blog in 98, 99 actually, I think. Web log was coined in 97 makes me feel really, really old. And also at this time, I was contacted by somebody from the Cedar Rapids Gazette about copying and pasting. And I really never thought about it. I don't want to say I didn't know better because I, you know, plagiarism or lack of attribution, citing sources, I'd learned about those things in college. So I don't want to sit here and say, oh, I didn't know any better. But at any rate, when I got contacted by the Gazette, I stopped copying and pasting. And it's at this point in time where I began to, I stopped copying and pasting entire articles. And I did some research because I didn't want to break any laws. I didn't want to get in trouble. And I learned about fair use. So I sampled like two or three sentences from every article I could find. And then, from, and then I put a link to it. And from that, I would then add my own commentary. 
And that's something that I did for years. It's something that I did again when I got back into the energy industry in 2013, when I basically applied the same skills, tactics, uh, branding, marketing strategies I used to build up Hawkeye Nation. I applied it to the energy industry, or the section of the energy industry that I was in, that had no personality, that had nobody or anything that stood out and was still doing marketing the same way they'd always done, and it worked incredibly well. But that's not what this podcast is about. So it was late 98 right now, and Tom Davis was in his lame duck year as Iowa's head basketball coach. And I was one of those guys that wanted to see Iowa go to the next level. I kind of had my fill of Dr. Tom's, what I felt, you know, plateau, mediocre results. I sent a letter to Steve Alford. Steve Alford was a coach at that time of Southwest Missouri State. Steve Alford had not had the magical run to the Sweet 16 as of yet in his career. He was just somebody, of course, that I had seen growing up in the 80s, who liked a lot, saw that he'd gotten back into coaching. I thought he'd make a great coach for Iowa. And that's really all that it was. So I figured out his address. I wrote him a letter that went something along the lines of, hey, coach, I think you'd be a great fit at Iowa. I really hope that you you come here, come to Iowa. Now I was using terms like we and us and come here as if I lived there. And at this, this point in time, I was living in, I was living in Denver. And then a few weeks passed and I get a letter back in the mail with Southwest Missouri State, which is now Missouri State, letterhead on it. And it was from Steve Alford. And he wrote in it, and I still have it somewhere. I'm not sure where. But basically, he said, hey, I really appreciate the letter. And Iowa is a fantastic institution and university. And anybody would be honored to be their head coach. But for now, I'm happy to be the head coach at Southwest Missouri State. Thanks again for reaching out. And the but for now part really stood out to me. So at this point, we're in late 1998. I don't have a website yet. I'm on the Herky email list serve. I got the Miller Time newsletter going out to 5,000 plus email, 5,000 plus people rather. And I just had a hunch that Steve Alford was going to be Iowa's head basketball coach. So I sent out an email to Herky. I sent out an email on the Miller Time newsletter. And I said, folks, I'm here to tell you it's December 1998. And I predict that Steve Alford is going to be the next Iowa basketball coach. And that's it. It got people's attention. A lot of people said, you're crazy. He hasn't done anything, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then March came. And Steve's Southwest Missouri State team made it to the Sweet 16. And he was the it coach. And he was the hot name. The new hotness, as Dace might say. And Iowa hired Steve Alford. 
And everybody said, wow, John, you nailed that one. How the heck did you know that was going to happen? How did you know? I'm like, well, you know, I might have talked to Steve or I might have communicated with Steve. Now, I did communicate with him via snail mail. I sent him a letter. He sent me a letter. I probably made it seem a little more significant than it was, but I was 27 at the time. So that is phase one of how I started to build somewhat of a name. And people actually began asking me, specifically me, for my opinions on things on the Herky list and certainly the Miller time list. What do you think about this? What do you think about this? Also on the Herky list was Tom Kakert. And Tom's name would just, Tom and I continued to pass by like ships in the night, but we were, uh, began to become aware of each other. In 1999, Steve Alford was hired in the spring of 99, but in um, November of 99, I believe it was, the Rivals.com, November of 1998, rather, the Rivals.com network was formed. In 1999, Rivals.com reached out to me and they said, hey, we've built a network of sites that are focused on team-specific content. We have a recruiting base. There's nothing like it in the entire world. And we are looking for writers. We already have one publisher at the Iowa site. His name is Josh Clark. And we found your Miller Time newsletter. We think you'd be a great fit and we'd be willing to pay you a grand a month to help Josh run the site because Josh is 16 years old and he's in high school. And I said, a thousand freaking bucks? That's freaking, that is righteous. So I said, yeah. So in late November of 1999, I joined Rivals.com. But let me go backwards in time a few months. It was in May or June of 1999 that I attended an iClub event in Overland Park, Kansas, just next to Corporate Woods there. And then assistant Iowa basketball coach was speaking. His name was Greg Lansing. Greg got done talking. I went up and I introduced myself to him. And we probably talked for 15 or 20 minutes, just he and I. And we exchanged phone numbers. And we became friends, and we still are to this very day. Greg reached out to me uh, the other night when I made the announcement that I was stepping away, and he also sent me a text. We're going to try and catch up and talk this week. He's the head coach right now at Indiana State. It was a very key relationship. So again, I told you I joined Rivals.com in very late November of 1999. And it happened to be on December 2nd of 1999, my wife's birthday, and we had been married for just over a year at that time. We were getting ready to go out for dinner. My phone rang, and the conversation I had with somebody that I placed a great deal of trust in relative to the veracity of what they were telling me said that, hey, John, you might want to know this. Luke Recker is going to be transferring to the University of Iowa. Now, Luke had began his career in Indiana, and then he transferred to Arizona. But he was there at Arizona a very short time, and he wanted to leave, wanted to get back closer to the Midwest. So before my wife and I went out to dinner on December the 2nd, 
And this is just within, I don't know, days of becoming a publisher at the superhawkeye.com site on rivals.com. That's what it was called, superhawkeye.com. I made a post and I said that I have learned, and it is a very good source, that Luke Recker will be transferring to the University of Iowa. Made the post, went out to dinner. Get home, because we don't have smartphones at that time, and we're texting the old style where you have to push, you know, a button three or four times to get to one letter. Get home, my email inbox is full. And there were several reporters, professional journalists, who were saying, hey, who told you this? How'd you hear this? This is BS. My, my sources aren't telling me this. I think you're making it up. There was a lot of that. A lot of it. People crapping all over me. You don't know anything. You're not a journalist. Just throwing all kinds of shade. And I will be honest, I was 28 years old and I was pretty scared. I was scared that I had just done something really wrong. I was nervous. I felt anxiety. And anybody who's ever reported on anything first, even if they feel they've got it right, you don't feel fully relieved until that person actually comes out and says and backs up, yes, I'm transferring or whatever it is. So for four days, I live with this fear, this anxiety and getting just dogged, dogged on the message boards. John, you're wrong. This reporter from this uh, newspaper saying that this isn't true or that they haven't heard this, etc. And again, these are the forums now. This is my first exposure to the superhawkeye.com forums. And for those of you who never were on superhawkeye.com, folks, there hasn't been an Iowa website to this day that had the reach and the number of Iowa fans on it as superhawkeye.com. And if Tom Tom Caker was on this podcast with me right now, he would say the same thing. We'll get to that in a second. Four days after I made that post, December the 6th, Luke Recker publicly announced that he was transferring to the University of Iowa. This changed everything. Changed everything for me. Took me from a nobody, a nobody that a few thousand people knew of, to somebody that hundreds of thousands of people heard of or checked out. It helped superhawkeye.com make huge leaps because, to their credit, many of these same reporters that were dogging me privately, many of them reached out and apologized and asked if they could use, you know, use me as a source or, or whatever. And it wasn't a source, but just interview. And I think it was more mea culpas than anything. John, what do you think about this? And John Miller, publisher of superhawkeye.com, thinks that this will be a great addition for the Iowa men's basketball team. And then they run a little two-sentence quote, and that's it. But it was notoriety. It was visibility. It was awareness. Radio stations called me. More on that soon as well. So this is late 1999. 
a year or the same year after the term blog was even coined. And here I am, one of the old school original sports bloggers. Didn't know I was old school at the time. I wasn't old school at the time. I was new school. So, in 2000, Tom Kakert actually reached out to me via email. He's like, hey, I want to talk with you about superhawkeye.com. And I ignored him. I'm like, you know, I, I, I just don't want to deal with this. Anyway, but Tom was persistent. And I finally talked to him. We got to know each other. And so Tom would join us at superhawkeye.com. And Tom and I really primarily covered the basketball beat. And Josh Clark covered the football beat. Mostly. Of course, then it grew to where we were all doing everything. But So that's how far back Tom and I go. And again, in 2000, this was the peak of the super site era of online. There wasn't a rivals.com, scout.com, 247.com, um, this.com, that.com. There wasn't. There were newspapers and there was superhawkeye.com. Hawk Central, they registered that URL in July of 2000, but they didn't start using it till later. Hawk Mania, which is the Quad City Times um, website, they registered their URL in October of 2000. They didn't start using it till later. I actually registered HawkeyeNation.com in November of 2000. All at the same time, all these things are happening. You're, you got to remember, this was like, this was the Wild West. This was undiscovered territory. And we were out here all staking our claims, like the land rush so many years ago. There weren't known commodities. We were making them. We were building the brands. We were building a genre. And... Superhawkeye.com was enormous. We did not have a rival, pun intended. There was no scout. There was nobody else. The newspapers, the newspapers totally screwed this up. Now, I don't want to sit here and say that if the newspapers had gotten this one right, they wouldn't be in the financial predicament they're in today because I think Craigslist had a lot to do with their undoing because classified ads were the biggest revenue generator for most newspapers. Obviously, advertising was the other component and then subscriptions to a lesser degree. But they had the ability. They had the reach. They had the power and the historical legacy to make sites like superhawkeye.com and these other sites be dead on arrival if they would have only started their own message board communities. But they didn't. And many of them started out behind paywalls. Cedar Rapids Gazette started out behind a paywall. Which is one of the, you know, I mean, they had the hammer. And they let it off the hook. And they let other people, they let 27-year-old people like me and Tom Kakert basically build our own names to where we applied for press credentials for press credentials in 2001 and I got it I was the first credentialed non-traditional media member that Iowa ever let in and even then it was because I had a tie to a legacy product we'll get there in a second so now we are in fall of 2000 and the Nasdaq 
which wasn't very old at that time, the NASDAQ crashes. The first tech bubble pops. Rivals.com, the people that founded Rivals.com, CEO Jim Heckman, uh, they'd spent quite a bit of money, uh, venture capital money on, on things, and um, just don't need to go over that sort of stuff, doesn't matter. They were very adversely affected, as were most internet companies at that time. And then one month later, I kind of thought, you know what? I know that I'm going to want to go out on my own someday anyway. So I registered HawkeyeNation.com in November of 2000, a full five, six months before I would publish there, just in case. December of 2000 was when premium, the word premium content started getting tossed around. By the way, how big was superhawkeye.com? When Blake Larson committed to Iowa, an offensive lineman, the number one ranked offensive lineman in the nation, I think that was in 2000. When he committed, we had a million page views in one day. One million. Folks, that's like enormous. Doesn't happen. Does not happen. So the premium came, rivals switched to subscriptions, and that's when things really began to fracture and scatter. And I knew that I would be wanting to go out on my own. In February of 2001, kind of as an aside, a good friend of mine, Bill Lipinski from West Liberty, Iowa, that I grew up playing against, me being from West Branch, but Bill and I would meet up in Kansas City and he would actually be an usher at my wedding. Uh, you may remember him from the message boards as Bohawk. He and I took a drive from Kansas City down to Coffeeville, Kansas to check out this guy that Iowa was looking at, that Iowa was recruiting by the name of Reggie Evans. So we drove down to Coffeeville and we watched Reggie. I still have the notes I took on Reggie, my little scouting report that I wrote down that I came back later and posted on HawkeyeNation.com. It's in a box somewhere, as are most of my things. They're in a box somewhere. Spring of 2001, Original Rivals, basically, it's bubbles popped. So on April 14th of 2001, HawkeyeNation.com came to life. And it was independent. And several people were a part of it relative to helping me. Mike, Dave, Nick, guys over at PSU Playbook, they were an independent site. So we kind of used their technology and did that for a few months. It was probably about this time that I began to post on the message boards my idea of buying KCJJ, the radio station, because I, I had dreams and visions of doing what the guys down in Kansas City did. 1510 went to 810 WHB, and I had my own sports talk, you know, Saturday sports talk show, two hours every Saturday night. Me and a guy named Stephen St. John would do a college football wrap-up radio show. This was in 99 and 2000. Stephen St. John has been a longtime morning show host on 810 WHB, but Stephen was just like me. He was a caller. He was one of Whitlock's favorite callers. And his name was M.U. Rock. And we both got invited to the Christmas party one year at 1510. It was down the plaza. And we went. And that's when they said, hey, do you guys want to team up and do a radio show? And I said, absolutely. I, I've forgotten all these things till I wrote them down, until I just started going through the chronology today. And I'm even chuckling at how far back all this goes and all the seeds of the entrepreneurial. It's just so fun to remember. And I appreciate you coming along for this ride. 
So started HawkeyeNation.com in April, independent site. And then late that summer, I was approached by the guys. They were from the Alliance Sports Network, Shannon Terry and Bobby Burton. Shannon Terry is, I think, he, well, he's a CEO or some kind of big wheel right now with 247. But they were saying that they were going to buy the assets or whatever of um, the original rivals.com. And they did. And they said they wanted a publisher and they wanted me to be the publisher. But the problem was they had contracted their publisher rights, if you will, for the Hawkeye site with a magazine called Voice of the Hawkeyes Magazine. Again, this is summer of 2001. Voice of the Hawkeyes magazine was during the season, I believe, a was it weekly during the season and bi-weekly out of season. It was a it was a newspaper magazine. And it was very successful. And a company called Landmark Communications owned several of these. They had one for Indiana, Notre Dame, etc. These were big, big things. And this company, I think Landmark Communications owned the Weather Channel at that time. So the guys from Rivals wanted me to be the publisher, but I had to be hired by Voice of the Hawkeyes because they had contracted the rights to the publisher to Voice of the Hawkeyes because they'd also done the same thing with all these other publications like Peegs and things of that nature that they that they had owned um, and you know Irish Illustrated. It was a really smart idea by them teaming up with existing media, uh, traditional media entities and, and having an online product. So I agreed and I left the independent world, I took the Hawkeye Nation name and banner and I moved it over to Rivals.com and it didn't end well with, with the guys, you know, Planet Hawkeye is what site eventually um, formed and I certainly understand why those folks um, were irritated with me, totally do. Um, you know, again, my idea to buy KCJJ and, and do the A10WHB model, just arrogant. That got back to the captain, and he didn't much care for it. And I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. I had no idea what it took to, to run a radio station or what you could even buy that thing for. And uh, so I kind of got on the wrong side of the captain. Not that other people haven't gotten on the wrong side of the captain through the years. I, I regret that. I was just so brash and, and didn't know what I didn't know. And, um, but I love, I love those guys. I love listening to the captain and, and Tom Suter and Pat Hardy's podcast and Tommy Lang. Those are all really good guys. Really like them a lot. So I don't think there's any hard feelings or animosity there. There certainly isn't from my standpoint. Those guys have done things for so long and so well, and, and they're certainly to be commended, uh, pioneers in their own right, uh, in their own genres. Um, so here I was at Rivals. It was, you know, that, that was, we were getting into 01 and it was the spring of 01 though, before I had joined Rivals that I actually went to the Iowa spring game and I met Kirk Ferentz for the first time. He was just walking on the sidewalk from the Jacobson building over to Kinnick. Nobody was even around him. I mean, he wasn't really, hadn't won a lot of games at that time. I just walked up to him and said, Kirk, my name is John Miller. I started a website, HawkeyeNation.com. And I hope to see you at Media Day this fall. And he said, John, really good to meet you. Really good to meet you. I hope to see you there too. And that was it. Kirk's probably thinking, what the hell's a website? <laughs> I mean, I, I really believe that was the case. What, what the hell's a HawkeyeNation.com? So we get to the fall of 2001. 
and I had the media credentials. And I think that I, I got them because of the voice of the Hawkeye connection, but I you know, said HawkeyeNation.com on them. And they told me, Phil Hattie said, well, you're the first non-traditional media member that we've ever given a credential to. I don't think he said non-traditional media member, but first website. I wasn't necessarily made to feel all that welcome, but they let me in. And that's okay. It was weird. Internet guys, it was foreign to everyone there. Several people from the papers felt threatened. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Because still at this point in time, the newspaper guys were like the fighter pilots of the sports media world. They were the big boys. You know, they were the personalities. And here's this usurper coming into their turf. Here's this guy that was, you know, he broke the Luke Recker story. And you know, we had to eat a little crow on that. I'm sure some of their sports editors are saying, why did this podunk guy from a, uh, an email list or a website that we've never even heard of, what's a website, by the way, how is he breaking this story when you've been on this beat for 15, 20 years? I'm sure there was some of that. So I didn't really have any friends I hung out with at that first media day in 2001. But the person that made me feel the most special and that I belonged more than anyone else, Iowa head coach Kirk Ferentz, walks up to me, didn't have my name tag on, by the way, at this point, says, hey, John, you made it. And that was a very poignant moment for me because I was stunned that he would remember my name. And it reminded me of something I read in maybe a Dale Carnegie or a Zig Ziglar book, Once Upon a Time, because I, I took the Dale Carnegie course and all this, that the most powerful word in the English language or the most powerful word of any language is your own name said back to you by someone that you would never expect to remember it. And Kirk did that. And Kirk has that skill. He does it with everyone. I've observed this through the years. It's a powerful skill. It is something that ingratiates people to you instantly. Instantly. At a subconscious and even conscious level. And I've tried to apply that in my career as well. And nowhere near as successfully as, as Kirk. Um, Kirk has done it. So it was a big day. And that was also a time when I got an opportunity to interview Kirk one-on-one -on -one at a media day. Things are a lot different now than they were back then. But back then, there was like seven, eight, nine, ten tables, and every media member that came, you know, got an opportunity to talk with Kirk. And I got a chance to talk with Kirk, just me and Kirk, for ten minutes. It was pretty cool for one. Uh, for two, it was a pretty important moment. So here we are now, the football season of 2001. And my brother Jason, he helped me a great deal to help to raise the visibility of HawkeyeNation.com. I went and made... And went to Kinko's, which was a copy company, copier company, copies. They made copies. 
And I printed off thousands of one sheets, front and back. On one side of the sheet, it had the Iowa football roster. On the other side of the sheet, it had, hey, please come visit my new website, HawkeyeNation.com. I'm John Miller, formerly of Super Hawkeye, blah, blah, blah. And we put these one sheets into coolers, coolers that had wheels, which was actually also a novelty at that time. I'd never seen coolers with wheels, and they had little arms you could pull them on. So I bought two of those things, two coolers, and Jason would go off one direction, I would go off another. And most of Iowa's games back then were 11 a.m. kicks and tailgating started early. So we were over in the Kinnick Stadium parking lot, 6 a.m., 5 a.m., pulling around coolers that probably weighed 30, 40 pounds, and going from tailgate to tailgate to tailgate, handing out these flyers, shaking hands and kissing babies to bring awareness to this business. So Jason, I thank you for the assistance you provided because that was invaluable. And we did that the whole year, every home game, handed them out. And then after we hand them all out, take the cooler back to my car, coolers back to my car. And then I put on my credential and I'd go into the stadium and I do my job every game, every week, thousands, thousands. And I would look down from the stadium press box perch, press box perch I was in, and I could see people with those flyers in their hands. And I would just get a smile on my face. And the entrepreneur in me was just beaming because this was the dirt road. This wasn't an easy road. There was no roadmap. There was no answering a one ad in the newspaper. Say, hey, come apply here. We have this job for you. You can be a, a website publisher uh, with 150,000 users a month. No, it didn't exist. So th- this is the part of the podcast where it's difficult for me not to sound um, too boastful. But I'm just giving you the history of the interwebs, the Hawkeye interwebs. And many of you are too young to be along for the ride back then. I didn't do it alone. I, wanna, I think I'm making that very clear. I didn't do it by myself. Nobody ever does. But there was no roadmap either. And I was very fortunate. And I was very fortunate to make some relationships that helped provide me with scoops and insight and people that frequented the message boards who were high-ranking officials in the Iowa Athletic Department that for some crazy reason would reach out to me via email and tell me things. And I would, they trusted me. And I would, I will still never tell you who they are uh, or what they said to this day. To my dying day, even though it doesn't matter anymore, it does to me. They trusted me, and I never broke their trust. So everyone thought I was a genius. Everyone thought I was the new kid on the block that had all the answers. That's why I was a threat to you know a lot of the guys that were in the traditional media at that time. And that's why it succeeded. I'm nothing special. I just have a, a drive and a desire that I'm not going to stop. And I love to build things. I'm a great starter. Um, But you have to be fortunate and you have to have people there helping you along the way. And I did. So that 2001 season was a blast. I sat next to Bob Brooks in the old Iowa press box. That that was, you have seat assignments and I sat next to Bob Brooks the whole time. It was amazing. What 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 a cool thing for a kid that grew up in eastern Iowa. 
Um, and also in 2001, I was invited on a talk radio show in Iowa City once a week. It was called Good Call. Mark Allen hosted that on KXI, uh, oh, can I, KXIC. Yeah, KXIC in Iowa City. And it was a round table. And it would vary from time to time, but I became a weekly person there. I think Tom Kakert was invited to it at times. I believe Todd Bromelkamp was, and he was with the Daily Island at that time. Um, Rob Howe, that's where I met Rob. Uh, Mike Finn also voiced the Hawkeyes. John Rio was on it, later Brent Balbinot. So we were on there every week. It was a great show, and it exposed me on the radio to that marketplace. And obviously, the relationship I began to build with Rob was invaluable. Fall of 2001, Steve Dace reaches out to me, has me on his weekly show on the jock in Des Moines, the only sports talk radio show in the state of Iowa at that time, the only daily sports talk radio show in the state of Iowa, an invaluable opportunity. Dace and I didn't know what we were doing, but it started a friendship that's lasted to this day. Also in 2001, one of the editors or big wheels over at the Cedar Rapids Gazette invited me to lunch. And we went out. And he was very critical. Very critical of my style. Said it was sloppy. That I wasn't a journalist. And I said, you know what? You're right. I'm not a journalist. But I'm something. And I'm going to be something. And I don't know why you invited me here just to dress me down, but if you think it's going to cause me to, to run away and not do this anymore, you picked the wrong guy. If anything, I just added another, another chick to the stack. And again, newspapers were still king at this time, and fan boards like Hawkeye Nation, Super Hawkeye, they would not have happened, or they would not have prospered the way they did if newspapers had only done it first. Newspapers had the eyeballs. They had the advantages. They had decades and in some instances over a century of branding and marketing. And they could have run ads in their own sports sections, which everybody still read at that point in time. They could have said, hey, come to our forum at hawkcentral.com or come to this over at hawkmania.com. I'm just using those as examples. I'm not like intentionally trying to disparage um, you know, the Gannett property or the, or the Quad City Times. They could have done that and we never would have existed. We meaning hawkeynation.com and the sites that would come after would have existed, but they didn't because it wasn't journalistic enough. It was too loose. It was too sloppy. Hubris undoing. Another interesting thing happened in the fall of 2001. Iowa was celebrating their 100 years of Hawkeye basketball. And they had sent out a little invitation to media members. Hey, we're going to have this get together at the Wigan Pen celebrating 100 years of Iowa basketball. And I thought, hey, this sounds really cool. I'll go show up for it. At that time, I still put back the uh, alcoholic beverages. So that's probably another reason why I wanted to do it. Not many people in the media showed up for this because it really wasn't that big of a deal. But I did. And so did Bob Bowlesby, who was Iowa's athletic director at the time. And Bob and I hung out two to three hours, sitting at a back table, just he and I. After the, the media that did show up and maybe took a photo, a, a 
photograph and left. It just came down to me and Bob. I think Mark Jennings is probably there too. But at the end, it was just Bob and I. Or Bob and me. I never really cared as much for grammar. And we talked for hours. And as we both had a few more beers and talked a little more freely, if you will, less inhibited, Bob started to answer my questions. They were all off the record. I started asking him questions about the head coaching search and the Bob Stoops thing and Kirk Ferentz and all that. And he told me his story. And it was not guarded. It was assumed that our conversation was off the record. And it was. And it was, again, just in a weird example of somebody trusting me who had no right to trust me and I hadn't earned the trust. But there it was. One of those lucky quirks of time. Back to that, how that meeting impacted things here in a second. Fall of 2002, we're at now. By the way, the 2001-2002 basketball season was just wonderful. Talk more about that in another podcast. Fall of 2002, the entrepreneur in me was frustrated. I was working with the Voice of the Hawkeye. I liked the web work. I liked writing columns for Voice of the Hawkeye. But I kept telling the owners of Voice of the Hawkeye that we needed to, because we had to sell subscriptions online for Hawkeye Nation. I said, guys, we'll have a lot more success selling subscriptions. And I was financially compensated for growth. We'll sell a lot more online subscriptions if we bundle the newspaper, the Voice of the Hawkeyes, with an online subscription. You got to bundle. Bundling's the new thing. And they said, no. They didn't just say no. It was almost a dismissive type of laugh. Like, listen, the internet is a passing fad. That's a quote. They told me the internet is a passing fad. The newspaper has always been here and always will be here. And I heard that and I did not believe that. I believed that the internet was the dog and Voice of the Hawkeyes magazine was the tail. And I knew at that point in fall of 2002 that I was done, that there was a glass ceiling for me and I don't do well with glass ceilings or stagnant thinkers, which is also why I started my own energy company. Because I wanted to be in trading a few years ago, and the, our VP said, I can't afford to lose John in sales. And I heard that, glass ceiling, I'm out. I got to go do my own thing. So it was the fall of 2002 where I contacted the guys that had originally started the first rivals.com, Jim Heckman. Bill Sorensen. Bill Sorensen still a friend of mine, a University of Iowa grad, by the way. And I said, hey, I'm interested in joining what you guys are doing at theinsiders.com, which later became scout.com. And they had hired Josh Clark. Same Josh Clark from superhawkeye.com days. Josh was older now, not quite 16. He's also a student at the University of Iowa. And he'd befriended some football coaches at Iowa, and they gave him some really good information. By the way, those coaches are no longer at Iowa. And they said, yeah, 
we can have a home for you. Do you have a contract though? I said, I do. And I don't want to get too far down the road into that part because I still am a little nervous about that saying things that I shouldn't say. So let's just say this. In the spring of 2003, Tom Kakert and I, because um, Tom was Tom was with me at um, Rivals.com, then Voice the Hawkeyes. It, Tom was focusing on the basketball beat, and I was focusing on the football beat. Josh had left and went with Jim Heckman and the Insiders guys right away. Um, Tom and I planned to leave Rivals and join what would be Scout.com. And Scout had agreed to pay me sixty grand a year. I was making thirty-six k with Rivals. Tom was like making very little, uh, and the pay was very inconsistent. And at any rate, and um, I gave my word to the guy at Scout that I would leave um, at a certain date. And the head guys from Rivals, Bobby Burton and Shannon Terry, and Shannon Terry again is the CEO, I think, of two four seven to to this day. Two four seven is what. Um, his latest um, that they, they sold Rivals.com to Yahoo and then they started up their own company in 247 so they flew in to see me in Shawnee, Kansas I met them at the Wendy's at Monticello Road in K7 in Shawnee and they offered me a six figure salary and a substantial budget for staff to pay people like Tom and I had not signed a contract with Scout but I had told them I would come to them and my wife was not thrilled with me. And at that point in time, I had a seven-month-old baby, my first child, and a lot of bills. And a six-figure salary back then at 2003 would have been really good. But I turned him down, and I also told him that I was leaving, and I was going to go work for Rivals. So you're starting to see how Rivals started, then I started the independent site, went back with Rivals, and then... Scout started. So the one network's going to two. And this is like the origin of the Hawkeye interwebs. I mean, my origin story online just runs concurrently with the origin story and, and the evolution story of, of Iowa Hawkeye fan websites because they didn't exist before we started working on them. So I'm not trying to make myself the center of it. Well, you know what? It's my podcast and this is my going away podcast. And I already warned you they were going to be long. So it kind of is, you know, it kind of is my story, but, um, this is how these things came into existence. Especially when you consider that the four largest Iowa Hawkeye fan sites, and when I say fan sites, I mean non-traditional newspaper-related websites, I had a pretty significant hand in building those. Superhawkeye.com, then the site that is now Hawkeye Report, that was built under the Hawkeye Nation flag with Tom Kakert and I. Then my leaving to scout.com, as I'm talking about right now, and we'll continue to talk about, um, built that site. And then I left that site, which was flying the flag of Hawkeye Nation in 2009 to start Hawkeye Nation, the independent site that's been independent for the last nine years. And each of those sites grew to average well over 100,000 unique users a day and four to five million page views a month. So again, didn't do it alone, uh, but I was a part of it. So I, I left and, and Rivals logically turned to Tom Kaker, who became the publisher. 
and they cha- and I took Hawkeye Nation away, but I had to sit out for six months. So the scout site was Hawkeye Illustrated for a few months, and then the rival site became Hawkeye Report, uh, what you still see there today. Now I will admit, at the time, I felt betrayed by Tom. I was 32 years old, immature, and I held that grudge for too long, to my detriment. And I don't blame Tom at all. He had a great opportunity, and Tom and I didn't have a contract. Just We were excited about the conversations. And I wasted a lot of years of a good friendship with a good person because of that grudge. And... It's also a lesson I learned in life that I just don't have those anymore. Don't have grudges. It's a waste. And I will tell another story here in a subsequent podcast this month about the Rose Bowl in 2016. And my favorite part of the Rose Bowl was the opportunity that Tom and I had to, to talk and, and really, I think, clear all the air. It was just wonderful because Tom's a great person. It also allowed me to reach out to Rob Howe. And I did. And Rob and I talked because we'd known each other from Good Call. And Rob agreed to come be the publisher at then Hawkeye Illustrated. And being able to look back in hindsight now, the benefit of hindsight, you know, these so many years later, I'm so glad that it turned out the way that it did. Not that Tom and I wouldn't have been able to do awesome things together and had a great run together, but... I had an opportunity to develop a friendship that will last a lifetime with Rob Howe. And I'm going to talk more about that and my appreciation for Rob in a subsequent episode here. But also, Rob, a great human being, a very honorable and trustworthy friend, peer and confidant, and someone that I'm extremely fortunate to have had in my life this long. Now, getting back to the story... Uh, I had told the Rivals version 2 owners that I was going to be leaving, and there were the non-compete issues. I spent that summer starting up a magazine and website called War Paint Illustrated on the Kansas City Chiefs, because I was living in Kansas City at that time. And that still exists to this day. And it was also the summer of 2003 that I reached out to an old friend, Bob Bowlesby. And I told Bob I was starting a magazine. And I asked him for an incredible favor. I said, if we sign um, an NDA, a blind, you know, and a blind publishing agreement, meaning that I would never get access to these names on these lists, it would be sealed and go straight to the printer. Would you allow us to send a copy of what would be the Hawkeye Nation magazine that we were going to launch? to every one of your season ticket holders. And he said yes. Again, I mean, this, 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 this is a, this, these stories are crazy. They're hard to believe. It's why I feel sometimes like I was Forrest Gump. But, you know, in a much smaller pool, I wasn't meeting with Nixon and Kennedy and going to China. But I'm, in, in Hawkeye circles, that's the life I feel like I've lived. Bob said yes. And I don't know that something like that would happen today. And that, that I'm not saying anything about Gary Bard. I, I just think the world's different. It's far more corporate. I don't think that they would trust something like a season ticket list, even though there were signed contracts. I, I never saw them. They were never in my possession. 
Bob or somebody sent them to the um, to the publisher. The publisher put the labels on them, and they were one-time use, and they were never used again. I never saw them. But Bob trusted us. And Bob obviously thought enough of me to do that. And I am forever grateful for that. Just a huge, huge thing he did. Unbelievable thing that he did. We sent out over 12,000 magazines. And it helped Hawkeye Nation version 3 on the Scout.com network explode. And the magazine sales explode. It made it highly viable. So now you had Hawkeye Report, which was basically on the Rivals.com website that Tom and I built. And now you had Hawkeye Nation, which was on the Scout Network, which was the fourth website that I had built. And I was kind of getting tired of building my own competitors. But oh well. Probably... Along those lines, I moved too many times and I was too fickle. I was too immature. I didn't have the proper vision. And again, the lessons that I learned in my life cost me pain, money, or both. But thankfully, over time, I learned them and stopped making the same mistakes. Winding down here, 2003, fall 2003, I was asked to do the Golden Harvest Hawkeye Huddle on the venerable and legendary 600 WMT. Did that. Fall of 2004. Uh, Joe Schmelka of the Polk County Eye Club invited me to come up and take part in their weekly Wednesday night radio show. And I was also invited to host Sound Off with the legendary Jim Zabel. So every Wednesday in 2004, I would drive from Kansas City to Des Moines to do a weekly one-hour show for nothing. And I would turn around and drive back to Kansas City. And every Saturday that same week, I would drive up to Des Moines, watch the games at uh, Pal Joey's, and then I would drive down to 2141 Grand. I would do sound off with Jim Zobel, thrill of a lifetime. We'll talk about more, that, more about that in subsequent podcasts. And then I would drive back to Kansas City. So I was going up and back, same day, twice a week, for next to nothing. Why? Because I believe that if I did this, I would show the, the big wheels at WHO, that I was someone that they should consider hiring someday. That's it. I, I basically did it just to prove myself that I was worthy of consideration with no guarantees. And several times when I would play the late game and sound off got over at like 10 p.m., I would start to drive back to Kansas City. And I would make it just across the Missouri border and I would start to fall asleep driving the car. Not like I wouldn't drive off the road, but I could tell I was getting drowsy, so I'd have to pull over. And, you know, there's a truck, there was a, a pit stop, a, a rest area just south of Bethany. Or I could only make it to like Eagle Ridge just across the, the state line to the fireworks place. And I would lay my seat down and I would sleep for three or four hours. And my wife, you know, again, we're not, there's no smartphones. I didn't want to call her because she's already in bed. And she'd wake up at three or four in the morning and I wasn't there. She was worried that I'd like gotten a wreck. But now I was just sleeping in the car. And she didn't like that, didn't feel good about that. And I said, hey, let's move to Des Moines. I think I can make this happen. And in the fall of, um, in the spring of 2015, we moved to Des Moines. And I didn't have any commitments. I, I didn't have any, I didn't have anything like, hey, you're going to do a radio show. You're going to do this. But we uh, were contacted by the folks at Mediacom Connections. 
they wanted to do uh, a TV show. They had listened to me and Dace on the radio through the years, my little segments with him every week. And they wanted to put us on TV, on Mediacom Connections Channel. And they did the fall of 2015, which launched a whole new trajectory for my career, people being aware of who I was visually, not just hearing me. And it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And the website was flying. The website was humming. You had the Cakerd's rival site. You had my scout site. And they were both monsters. They were huge, huge websites. Each of us pushing 150, 200,000 unique users a month. Each of us pushing four, five, six, seven million page views a month. Just enormous times. Pre-Twitter, by the way. Key, by the way. Uh, summer 2006, finally got the talk show. I talked my way in and Joe McRae and Van Harden over at KXNO and WHO. They gave me my own show. I was not ready for it. I don't think you ever really are ready for your first talk show. And for two years, boy, did I suck. Really sucked. But it was great training ground. And then the F-bomb tirade of 2009, I was in the room for that. And that led to some people losing their jobs. And that led to KX Snow being in a very tough position. And they asked if Steve and I would do a morning show. Which also meant the end of our State of the Nations TV show. And we launched Miller and Dace in the morning in the spring of 2009. And it became one of the highest rated sports talk shows or talk radio shows in Des Moines radio history. Um, modern history. At that time, we were consistently beating Van and Bonnie who were on a monster stick on WHO. And here we were down the hall at a very small um, AM station. And we were number one in the market for the majority of the ratings books that we were there for in the coveted males 25 to 54 demo. And it was a blast. And this was uh, 2010. I auditioned for the Big Ten Network TV show with a number of people and was fortunate enough to get that. And thank you to um, Gary Barta for putting in the good word for me there, bringing me to their attention. That was one of the thrills of my life. So at the summer of 2010, when I was told I won the audition, one of two slots. I was the uh, the news guy, and they had they wanted to pair me with an athlete from the Big Ten, so I got that. Um, much to the surprise of many of my detractors, but you know, you know hand out national TV shows to anybody. Even though it only lasted five weeks, I can say that I had my own national television show. And thirteen-year-old John's dreams had come true. Now, I never did become the voice of the Hawkeyes, like Gary Dolphin or Jim Zobel. But in a way, with the internet and how much the internet has become enmeshed in part of our lives and the way that we get our information, I don't know. You could say maybe I did. It doesn't really matter. But I will say that I got every last bit out of this career that I ever set out to do. I was able to do things I never dreamed of. And my dreams were pretty big for a 13-year-old. And that's where we are today. And my leaving has everything to do with another mountain to climb. I thought I would do this and be a part of this Hawkeye 
world. I don't even call myself media anymore because, I mean, I live in Oklahoma for now. Hopefully, Kansas City soon. And I thought I'd be doing this forever. I thought I'd be like Jim, Jim Zobel, and just do this in my 70s and 80s because it's easy to do. I've got microphones. Technology is only going to become better and better and easier to make it. But the energy company is just taking up. It, it demands any spare time that I have in my focus because I love it. I absolutely love it with the same passion that I had for the Hawkeyes. And I've just spent an hour and 20 minutes talking to you and sharing with you those passions, those dreams, the path. And if you're still listening to this, my gosh, you must really like me and I appreciate that. I have that same passion for the energy analysis I do, how I've been able to rebuild this model that worked for me in the world of sports into a different genre. One that pays a little better than the sports genre, but it's about climbing the mountains. And um, I need to climb this one. And when you're climbing up a mountain, hey, if you, if you saw Free Solo, he didn't need to be checking his phone when he was climbing up El Capitan. I need to be focused on. Uh, I need to be focused on El Capitan in front of me. But I'm grateful for the time that I had in the sports genre. I'm not saying I'll never return. It just it's not in the plans right now. But I want to say again, verbally, what I wrote on HawkeyeNation.com Saturday. I thank each and every one of you. Because all these things that I laid out, there's one comp, there, there's a, there's two common denominators. Me and you. And without you, there'd be no me. There'd still be you without me. There'd have been somebody else, but it happened to be me. And I greatly thank you for reading enough articles, listening to enough radio shows. I was overwhelmed with the replies on Twitter to my post about stepping away. The truly heartwarming responses and replies that I had, I've read every single one of them that I've seen in my feed. If there were retweets, I don't know that I saw some of those retweets with comments because those don't show up in my, um, my notification feed as easily. And if I didn't reply to those, I'm sorry. But I thank each and every one of you for those. It means the great deal to me. I'm going to give an analogy here that a friend of mine told me was a little dark, but it's the best way I can sum this up and let you know how truly I, much I appreciate um, the kind words on Twitter, DMs, emails, Facebook, texts. Obviously, funerals are not fun. But one of the more melancholy aspects to funerals for me is when I look around and I see the number of people that show up in support of the deceased, the deceased's family, the outpouring of love they get to see and experience. And I always wonder if the person that had passed had any idea while they were living just how many people they touched or impacted or motivated, or inspired, or befriended? Did they have any idea that this many people cared? 
to some degree or another? And I always think the answer to that question is no. Because most of us aren't very good at communicating those things. We don't take the time that we should to let other people know that they have value. So the replies to that thread and other replies and notes that I've received from people, I just want you to know, I feel like I, I'm getting that chance to feel the love, as they might say, while I'm still hopefully a long ways off from that final uh, dirt nap. So I really appreciate it. And I, I don't mean that to sound callous or harsh or crass or offend anyone, but it's the best analogy that I have. I've been fortunate to have this experience, thanks to you, and I'm doubly fortunate to be able to witness the level of appreciation that many of you have expressed. And I can't thank you enough. There'll be a few more of these. We'll go down memory lane with more specific stories. But this was one that just kind of, kind of came up to me today. I wanted to I wanted to sort of give an oral history of how this all began because the majority of you haven't been with me since the start. I mean, I've, I've seen enough tweets from people saying, hey, I started, I started reading your stuff when I was in seventh grade in 2003 or 2004. I'm like, holy cow, I'm old. I'm not even 50 yet. I'm not even 50 and I'm one of the original sports bloggers, which showed you how young I was when I started this. Not quite as young as Josh Clark was. And Josh and I traded some notes as well. He's doing just fine with a young family down in Florida. But um, thank you. We'll talk soon.